a wise guy, eh? He sure is. He's the fantasy baseball wise guy. And we have a solid hour with Gene McCaffrey next on Baseball HQ Radio. Pitch is a high fly ball to right deep. Going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall. He's under it now. And it's taken away from him by a fan. And they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Richie Garcia is calling it a home run. And Tarasco is out to argue. A terrible call by Richie Garcia. It's all time. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 31st. It's show number 13 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. We'll be talking with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball about his tout war strategies, ideas about how hitters age, perceived pitcher velocity, low average power hitters, the pitcher who will outperform Clayton Kershaw, his sleepers and weepers for the coming season, a great blues legend, and much more. And in our Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Detroit catching prospect James McCann. It's another big Tuesday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? He's the fantasy baseball wise guy, and a pitcher who's going to outperform Kershaw? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of the Tuesday edition, as always, our feature expert interview, it's Wise Guy Baseball's Gene McCaffrey. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be here, Patrick. Always a pleasure. Let's start with your decision not to publish the Wise Guy Baseball Annual, a favorite of many uh, fantasy baseball players. What led to that decision, Gene? Well, there are two reasons, really. One of them is sort of altruistic, and one of them is completely selfish. The altruistic one was that Relatively speaking, I, I feel somewhat incompetent to be advising people um, because I just um, haven't had some good years in the last couple of years, and that that gives me great pause, um, causes me to rethink everything, and makes me hesitate to charge people $50 for what I have to say. And then the selfish reason is, is that, I mean, it's kind of contradictory in a way, but it, the the selfish reason is that I've been think I've been having too much influence. You know, I sit down at these draft tables, and all these really good players know exactly what I'm thinking, and I have no idea what they're thinking. So I figured I'd maybe if I could shut my mouth a little bit this year, um, maybe I could see some benefits. He said as he joined the interview on Baseball HQ. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking. So, so to sum up, my advice is terrible, and I'm not sharing it with anybody. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. My advice is worthless, um, <laughs> and so, I don't want you to have it. Right. That's right. And please listen to me. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, man, if if uh, you know. Uh, fantasy experthood uh, depends on being successful at it. There's a lot of us who are going to be in trouble in this business. Uh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I have made this comment many times over the years, um, but, you know, that's the way of the world, and people just bull ahead, and I don't know. I don't know. I know you're this way, too, but when I'm wrong, I want to know why I'm wrong so that maybe I won't be wrong the next time. Uh, but I see a lot of people who are wrong and then they just insist on doubling up and being wrong again. I, I will name no names, <laughs> but uh, I think people are aware of who they are to judge by the comments that I see on the Internet from time to time. It makes me think of, uh, I don't know if you read Paul Krugman in the New York Times, but uh, he kind of makes the point that there's this uh, group of economists who've been saying for the last 10 years that inflation is just around the corner and it just never comes and they just keep saying it anyway and, and they just stand by their guns even though they've been proved wrong time and time again. And it, it does, in, it's not just in fantasy baseball or in economics, it's in everything. People are very loath to uh, admit that they've modeled things incorrectly and they, they need to fix things because it's easier not to, I suspect. Yeah, I think it's probably more true in the, in the realm of politics and economics where being wrong means absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, uh, people are, seem to be more concerned about truth in the sports section, and what that says about our society is a matter for another discussion. But, um, but at least they do care more, I think, in, in, uh, in baseball, what's actually true. Um, maybe pathetic, but 
you know, the last bastion of truth, baseball. It is. Uh, a lot of people think that. And uh, what formats, what kind of leagues are, are you playing in this season? I know I saw you in New York at Tout. You were in the National League single league format. Uh, what other leagues are you playing in? Well, one of my things, one of the things that's been driving me crazy, and one of the things that's contributed to uh, to the fact to being wrong, is just dealing with all these injuries. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, every single day, somebody goes down. So I thought that this year, what I would do is I would abandon the 15-team format, except for those leagues that where you draft 50 players, like the NFBC style, and then there's no fabbing all year. And that's a good format. Uh, for that, um, so I'm going to a 12-team league this year, um, and I'm going to take a serious crack at the daily fantasy games this year because I think that's the best, the best way to react to uh, to the endless injuries. Uh, what about uh, uh, the salary cap type games? You've always said you think they're the fairest test of uh, of acumen in in the player valuation part of the game. And uh, are you playing in any of those uh, big salary cap games, CDM or one of those? Well, I decided not to this year because, well, first of all, the the DFS games are salary cap games, right? And I think that's a better um, better resource, a uh, better way to uh, to test yourself for that format. Yeah, and I do think that over time they are the best games. I'm playing in one kind of odd hybrid league using the CDM salaries, but it's a ten team mixed league draft where you have to use the uh, the salaries that they put up, and that's an interesting league for me. And the first time I'm playing it, and, and that's so that's my how I'm dabbling in that this year. I've heard about that before. Uh, the first time I heard of it was in a basketball draft, and they they wanted to figure out some way of p- imposing the salary restraints that are that are used in the NBA itself. But they didn't want to have an auction because they found that the uh, like a lot of auction drafts are going, you get some very unrealistic bidding at the higher end, and then everybody's scrambling around for dollar guys at the end. And so what they put together was a straight draft with salaries attached, and they used actual NBA salaries and the actual NBA salary cap, and. And uh, the, the guy who ran it said he expected that it would be a, pretty much a chalk draft for the first three rounds. It, it would be most expensive down to least. But what they found was, at least in this guy's experience, was that the players, uh, the owners, were pretty smart about it. And they they assessed where the value was, where the profit was, and, and the picks went in that order. So your Kobe Bryant's at $24 million a year or whatever, despite his, uh, this was a few years ago. So he's obviously a, a very good player and a very big contributor in a lot of statistical categories, was way down the list because people looked at his salary and said it may not even be a profit yeah uh, yeah i think that's true um in this particular one it wasn't wasn't too difficult even though they lowered the cap because there were a lot of people uh, especially pitchers this year who were heavily discounted and it made it pretty easy to uh, to get in under the cap i think there was one team that uh, did draft that is over the cap and he's going to have to use his reserves to uh, to get under but for the most part i don't think the players in this league had any difficulty getting under it's an interesting format, and I, I hope to see more of it in the in the future. I, I think it it has the uh, a really interesting combination of the of the kinds of draft we're used to, plus a, a new wrinkle. Always looking for new wrinkles. Uh, Gene, uh, you said you're not going to be playing in the NFBC main event this year. Uh, I know you've been uh, a player in that league for a long time. Why the why the switch? Why are you not in NFBC? Well, you know, I don't want to knock them too hard, but I just don't think it's a very good investment um, for return on the dollars. Um, I don't think the league prize is high enough. It cost me $1,000 to go to Vegas in addition to all those things. So as far as the NFB is concerned, NFBC is concerned, I would rather do the 50-guy the drafts and the 12-team leagues that, uh, that I think give you more options when the, when the injuries hit. You know, I, I don't want to be restricted to... Um, you know which which of two stiffs can I choose to uh, fill in for my injured guy? I want to have options, and there's a lot more options in a 12 team league. So that's what I'm doing. You're talking about a 12 team mixed. Mm-hmm. Then I wouldn't mind a 10 team mixed either. I mean, that gives you even more options. You know, I know it's uh, it's considered sort of um, de classe with the uh, with the purists, but uh, you know, how else are you going to react to to baseball 2015 and um, I think it's the best way to do it. And it's an interesting format, Gene, in that having to draft your entire reserve list and not having access to FAB and the free agent pool during the season imposes an interesting challenge that's 
far more like the experience of running an actual Major League Baseball organization. And I'm not saying that that has to be our, our goal is to emulate that with great accuracy, but it seems like a more interesting intellectual challenge to make sure that you have all of your spots filled in the event of injury, unlike being able to just go and dip into 200 available free agents. Yeah, I agree. And it, it forces you to think about what is going to happen during the season. And it also um, enables you to take players who, who are talented but don't have roles um, with minor leaguers. This guy can contribute. Um, this guy's got a better shot than the other guy to contribute. And, yeah, I think it's a really good way to do it. And it's one way to react to, to uh, baseball of 2015, and it's a pretty good way. So, yeah, I'm doing it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Gene McCaffrey, the baseball wise guy. And, Gene, I know you were at Tout Wars, as I said. You played the National League-only format, and uh, we spoke before the draft, and you've filled me in on your secret strategy. Now that the draft is over, what was it? Well, the problem with only leagues is that everyone is spending at least 70% on hitting. And when it, look, when it works, it looks great. I know this is an HQ strategy, and, it, and it's gained credence because it works. Um, but now everybody's doing it. So out of the nine teams that are doing it, it's not going to work for eight of them. Um, it is going to work for the one, and it looks great. It looks terrible when it doesn't work. My thinking was, therefore, that it should be possible to go 60-40, dominate the pitching categories and get enough offense by buying cheap at-bats. Because as we know, um, the team that has the most at-bats is going to win the offensive categories most of the time, the vast majority of the time, in fact. So that's my thinking. It's difficult to do, but I thought it was worth a try. I know you all... You're going to ask me, did it work? (laughs) I'm going to say... I don't think so. <laughs> you also had a uh, the idea of pushing aside the on-base percentage because of uh, something that Michael Salfino told you uh, before the draft about how the, the OBP varies versus how batting average varies. Now, you thought you might get a lot of discounts. Yeah, well, we talked about it, the always estimable Michael Salfino, and it was a good idea, and we... I wasn't sure that the room was going to allow me to do it, so we thought that what I would do is early on I would throw out Ian Desmond, who was a guy who might be undervalued in an OBP versus batting average format because he doesn't walk very much. Um, And if he went kind of cheap, that that would be a tip-off that the room would let me do this. Um, And and as it happened, um, uh, Desmond went for $26, which is kind of cheap, um, especially given the, the prices for the other guys. So I said, oh, okay, this is going to work. But as it turned out, um, besides Desmond, who I didn't buy um, and probably should have, uh, the room did not devalue on base percentage or the guys who were low in our base percentages. I mean, the thinking was that, as Michael said, was that if these guys are getting their hits, they're still going to produce the other four categories. And so we can afford to you know, ignore on, not ignore it, but just not pay for it. Um, anyway, it didn't work as far as the room was concerned, but, but what did work for me was that I just, you know, I had to abandon being particular about the types of hitters that I was getting, but I had to still get the at-bats. And the, the key to that strategy is that you can't have many or even any $1 players. You have to have your roster filled with guys who are at least decent platoon players and um, to get the at-bats. And that I did accomplish. But whether I got enough power, speed, and on-base percentage is very much an open question. And uh, uh, the only thing is, that's a trading league, and I really do have a good pitching staff. So if worst comes to worst, I, I think I can trade from strength and, uh, and shore up the offense. So, uh, you know, nobody has, in an only league, nobody ever comes out of there with a perfect team, especially with these guys in Tower Wars. These guys don't give me an inch. So um, so I'm not thrilled with it, but I think I've got a shot. So let's see what happens. I thought it was interesting, the, the, Michael's idea, uh, that uh, because this was the first year, I believe, of on-base percentage in that league, and uh, I remember when Tell Wars Mixed, the league that I play in, went to on-base percentage, the expectation, and in fact the reality of it, turned out to be that everybody overvalued on-base percentage. 
at that draft, a lot of players who had low on-base percentages were devalued exactly as you expected. But as you said, at your particular draft, uh, it seems like everybody looked at it and said, all right, you know, it's uh, it's a guy with a low on-base percentage. I need the home runs anyway, so I'll take whoever's up for bids. And, and the bidding was just as aggressive on low on-base guys as it was on high on-base guys, although the high on-base guys did go for a dollar or two more, relatively speaking. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, a few guys, you know, Lucas Duda was a guy, um, you know, who's more valuable in, in an on-base. My thinking is, I, I know Michael believes that you should just ignore on-base percentage, but in my pricing structure, I... I see his point, but still, you know, at the extremes, I think that a guy should be bumped a buck or two or dropped a buck or two based on their on-base percentage. You know, it is a category. I don't think that, you know, in general, you should ignore it um, any more than you should ignore any other category. Um, I, we just thought in this particular case it might work that uh, there might be a way, you know, in between the in between the cracks of these very sophisticated bidders. It just didn't happen. You started off the draft by getting Aroldis Chapman. I know that was another part of your strategy, and and uh, after that, you kind of you you bid on a lot of players. I was tracking the draft for for a research project that I'm doing, and about a, a third of the way into the draft, or maybe a quarter of the way into the draft, Chapman was still the only guy on your roster, and you had a lot of money and no players. At what point did you start thinking, "Oh my goodness, I better start uh, piling up some guys here"? I, I noticed. Um... I was trying, I was trying to overpay, and they wouldn't let me. Uh, but I consoled myself with the fact that, okay, it will happen then, because as I say, the hitters. One of the things about you know a seventy thirty strategy is a hitters are going to be overvalued, b pitchers are going to be undervalued. Um, so I knew that it was going to happen that at some point I would get players, but I did. You do get a little nervous when that happens, and you're sitting there and you're with with no roster and. Not only the star hitters, but the hitters are mostly gone. Um, so yeah, you have to scramble, you have to overpay a little bit, and um, I kind of figured that I would be okay, and, and and it actually did work out that way because all you know, all of a sudden, bang, 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 I, I and I wound up with being the first guy finished. So I did get my players, and um, but yeah, it does make me nervous when that happens. Uh, it was quite surprising when uh, all of a sudden, uh, at two thirds of the way through the draft, uh, you bought your last player, and the auctioneer uh, Brian Feldman said, "And that means Gene is done." And I, I looked up and I said, "Gene's done," because you were, you were like, uh, at the one third of the way through, you would never have guessed that you'd be the first guy out. But you really went on an Ivana Trump shop till you drop spree, and, and really loaded your roster very, very quickly after that point. Yeah, well, one of the things that happens when you when you're paying a lot for star hitters, you're going to have dollar players. It's unavoidable in only leagues, and there were a lot of guys who spent a lot of money on hitting who had to be quiet. Um, so that's where the opportunity comes in, and um, so I just took advantage of filling in with these dull, unsexy players who um, who I hope will just contribute enough in at bats to. Uh, to get me over the top, or at least get me above average in the hitting category, because I have no illusions that I have the best offense. And did you end up with literally no $1 hitters? Uh, yeah, Corey Hart at $2 was my cheapest. Uh, I mean, he's at least a, a platoon player, and if somebody gets hurt, which somebody will, um, he could wind up playing first base or right field regularly, and not that he's a great player or anything, but, um, you know, if he's your worst Offensive player, I, I think the team is at least as far as um, at bats are concerned is in pretty good shape. I was going to say if you're you know if you're looking at Corey Hart and expecting an injury, there's a fairly good chance Corey Hart will be the injury. But uh, given given his correct, <laughs> and, that, and as a result, well, one of the the other thing that I did was I uh, all four of my reserve picks were hitters, which is something I've never done before. I always like to have a pitcher for streaming purposes or. You know, not streaming in the in the strict sense of the word, but in the loose sense of the word. But you know, the Fab Wire is not exhausted this early in the season, and I need I needed to get those you know long shot hitters. Then hope that one of them comes through, and um, and they were Gritchick, Derek Dietrich, Kyle Parker of the Rockies, and Yuri Perez, who got sent down the next day. <laughs> uh, but you know, Eric Young Jr. is not a great ball player, and especially when he's in center field, so. I think I have a pretty good shot that one of those four guys will uh, will contribute. 
Gene, I know when it, whenever we get together at Tout Wars, not just you and I, but all the guys uh, in the business, we like to talk about some of the concepts that are floating around, and I like to talk with you about some of those. Uh, starting with this idea, this came up, I think, last year sometime uh, and has been sort of burbling along in the back burner ever since, this uh, concept that says hitters, the, f- the first year they come into the big leagues or within the first couple of years, that's as good as they're going to get, and it's all downhill from there. And I'm wondering, uh, h- how do you react to this whole idea, and do you, how much credence do you put in it? Well, I put at least some credence in it. Um, and, you know, part of it is that somebody does some research, and it shows something. I mean, in this case, the research goes back to Bill James and, and the first widely circulated baseball abstract in which he said that players' peaks were at the age of typically 26 to 28 or 25 to 29, if you wanted to extend it. Um, and that was true. But even in those days, it wasn't, you know, it's not biblical truth. It's not, you know, revelation. It's, it, it's generally true. And people tend to get a little bit lazy about it. However, in the past few years, there was some research on fan graphs that showed that a lot of players were... Um, as good as they were ever going to be within a year or two of getting into the major leagues. And there's a lot of players that, you know, as I was doing um, my wise guy research this year, um, I noticed, yeah, it's really true. You know, Elvis Andrus, Desmond Jennings, uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, but there's a lot of guys who have never gotten better. And so I wasn't crazy about the way the, the Fangraphs guy did the research, but I couldn't, you know, I'm not to blame him because it's a very difficult thing to uh, to research. But I think that if you do it on an individual, uh, not to say anecdotal basis, um, that there's there's definitely increasing evidence that there's something to this theory, and it would change a whole lot for for us. So I think I want to went into this year bearing it in mind and expecting. I'm not really expecting a lot of growth from hitters. I'm expecting them to do what they've done. You know, rather than making the age adjustment that I think all of us subconsciously make, um, just treat them as what they are. What you see is what you get, and, and see see if that works and it results in better uh, estimates of what they're going to do. It does tend to, to reinforce the idea that we need to reshape the age curve because there always has been this uh, expectation, as you mentioned, that you know a guy comes into the league at whatever age and he's going to improve, improve, improve up until he hits his peak in the late 20s, early 30s, and then decline, decline, decline. And at the very least, we need to understand that that might not be right. And furthermore, I th- I did some research a couple of years ago for BaseballHQ.com, and I-, I found that it wasn't so much about age as it was about experience. And particularly around the 800 plate appearance mark for a hitter was if you could get a guy the year after he hit 800 plate appearances, that was your best shot at, at finding a guy who's going to make whatever jump he was going to make. I wonder if we need to combine those two concepts and say, you know, let's let's look for those 800 to 1,000 plate appearance guys, grab them that year, and then expect diminishing returns every year after. Yeah, I think it's a really good idea. I, did, I missed that uh, bit of research that you did, which uh, so I'm going to go back in the archives and look it up. It used to be the old benchmark, which John Benson used to use, if you were 26 years old and you had 500 games of experience, that that was the guy who was going to break out. Now, obviously, after 500 games, you have a lot more than 800 plate appearances. So, yeah, right. I mean, your way of looking at it is a really good way. It's a, what I think the, the best thing that we can do in these situations is to look at every angle that we can think of and study it from that angle and see if, you know, between two or three different uh, ways of looking at it that we can come up with something that's a little more definitive than uh, than just this accepted truth. I, I'd also like to to look into how the age pattern varies by first year in the majors or age at first year in the majors. It's really tough to get to the major leagues of baseball at any kind of a young age. And when when guys do accomplish it, you know, they're 19, 20, 21 years old and they're in the big leagues. But if if you have a guy who gets into the big leagues and performs even reasonably well at 20, that's a guy that has a very good chance, apparently, by the odds of being in the Hall of Fame, for one thing. A 50% is if you play regularly in the major leagues by the age of 21, you have a 50% chance of being in the Hall of Fame, which is still true. The other aspect to this is that one of the reasons that people suggested that for the lack of development is that all the videotape is that the hitter's weaknesses are exposed earlier and exploited. 
Um, and there might be something to that, too. Um, uh, again, hard to quantify, but um, intuitively it makes sense. Another interesting idea making the rounds has to do with pitcher height. I know this is something that really interests you, the idea of perceived velocity. And that is uh, somebody realized that uh, the velocity of the thrown pitch is what it is, but if it's thrown from a shorter distance, it's going to seem to be faster because it's going to be on you more quickly. And each foot closer to the plate that a pitcher releases the ball adds up to about a two or two and a half mile an hour increase in this perceived velocity. And and I'm wondering for fantasy purposes, Gene, how do you think this should affect how we look at pitchers? Well, I think that um, taller pitchers should, um, you, you know, take that into consideration when you're looking at their velocity, which we all look at nowadays. Yeah, I thought that, uh, you know, at the first pitch forum um, this year, uh, when they showed the video of that, um, it was it was a minor revelation to me, and uh, another good reason to go to the first pitch forums. Uh, yep. one of many reasons to go to it. But um, but yeah, and I said, well, this changes a lot for us, and it's not necessarily height related because if uh, people will remember when Lincecum, who's a small guy, came up, he had a tremendous stride, and so that's another thing to look at. If you can get video on on pitchers, um, short or tall. Check it out and look at their stride. And if they're if they're tall and they have a really long um, uh, long stride to the plate, well, you know he could probably throw eighty nine, and and you know it's going to look like it's ninety three. Um, and so that's definitely worth checking out. And uh, you know one of those things that in the in these days of where edges are harder to come by, where you might pick something up on a player or two, a pitcher or two over the course of the season, or you know, we're scouting this year for next year, that sort of thing, you know, or for fabbing purposes. Um, yeah, keep an eye on it. I think that will help people, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing it this year myself. Is there anywhere on the web that you know of where, where they track the distance from point of release to the plate as a, as a measure or as a metric? No, but what they do have is video of the, of the pitchers, and that's what I'm using. Um, you know, you just measure it off on the mound and say, okay, where's this guy's foot landing? You know, where's he de- delivering the ball from? Um, so it's sort of a subjective thing. But it, but I think that if you look at it, I mean, you can see. Um, so it's not something that's invisible to uh, to the untrained eye, and it requires very little training to uh, to get the hang of it. So I think it's okay, even though I've not seen that yet. It would be nice if you could just look in one place, but I haven't seen it, no. And uh, generally speaking, is is where the plant foot lands a pretty good proxy for where the ball is being released? Yeah, and where the arm is in relation to where the foot is landing when the when the ball leaves the hand, because that's really the important thing. But the the foot is an indicator of the hand, as it were. Gene, I traded Oswaldo Arcia in the off season in my home league. It's American League only that uses batting average. And one of the reasons is I like the possibility of 20 to 25 home runs well enough, especially in this environment. But I just didn't like the idea of that very low batting average likelihood. What's your take on getting power at a low batting average? Well, my take is never to reach for it. Um, It's going to be there. I know that home runs are down, but as Todd Zola says, it's relative. Um, there were still a, guys, a lot of guys hitting over tw- between 20 and 30 where there used to be, you know, between 25 and 35. Um, I think that the guys who hit for a higher average, in a, in, but they're low average hitters, especially the high strikeout fly ball hitters who are notoriously streaky, um, they tend to have those down periods. Um, and the ones who, hit, who did well the year before, there is a recency bias, and they're going to go higher. Than the guys who go lower, um, the guys who hit 215 the year before, um, who in a lot of cases are going to rebound. And so part of it is not reaching for these guys. The other part of it is to try to get these low average hitters in the year when they hit 250, 260 as opposed to two, you know, 220, 230. Um, so if you, could, if you can do that with one or two guys, your offense is going to be in pretty good shape. And speaking of batting average, it's now so customary, you might as well call it routine, that fantasy experts and fantasy expert uh, websites cite uh, BABIP, uh, batting average on balls in play, we call it hit percent at baseballhq.com, as an indicator of how much luck is involved in a guy's batting average based on uh, how high or low his BABIP is. I know you have an opinion, however, that BABIP might be calculated in a way that's not exactly accurate. Yeah, they don't count home runs. 
Uh, last time I looked, home runs were hits. Um, also, I thought statistics were supposed to uh, measure what actually happens rather than what somebody thinks should have happened. Um, home runs are hits. Um, they're the best kind of hits. Um, I think that they should be factored in, in into BABIP for hitters and for pitchers. I mean, it's the best thing a hitter can do. It's the worst thing a pitcher can do is to allow a home run. They are hits. Let's count them. Who decided this? I'd like to know. Um, and can we, you know, get a revolution going here and uh, overthrow this this inaccurate measurement? At Tout Wars, Gene, you and I were talking about my draft, and I drafted Nelson Cruz for $14 in the mixed draft, which I thought was a really good bargain. And uh, kind of uh, sort of half-humorously, you said you hate Nelson Cruz and you like having him on your roster because you think it's a good thing to own players you hate. Uh, why is that? Well, baseball's a game of failure. Um, when a player that you hate and own does poorly, which they're going to do most of the time, you can curse them to the moon, and you feel great. You say, you SOB, and then when they do something good, you can say, hey, it's about time you did something, you dirty bum. <laughs> and um, it's good for your psychological health. Um, the other thing is, if you have a player you hate and you don't own him, and he does well, you're only going to hate him more. Um, and that's bad for your soul. So, <laughs> you know, in the interest of peace and love, own the guy. At least a couple of you. You have nothing against owning players you like, though, right? No, no, not at all. But it's so crushing when it, when a guy that you like, when you have to curse him out. Um, I don't like doing it. I don't think anybody likes doing it. So I like to, you know, at least have one guy that I that I can't stand. I used to like for Barry Bonds was the perfect example of a, you know a guy that, you know, and I think that sometimes if a player is universally disliked, I knew this was true of Roberto Alomar back in the day, especially after the spitting incident, that for a couple of years there, he went for less than he should have because everybody hated him and they didn't, you know, I don't think that happens very much anymore, but it's still possible. And, uh, you know, and if somebody hates a guy, he might not bid the extra buck that the guy is really worth. So, Another thing to keep in mind. Gene, you're on the record as saying you think Matt Harvey of the Mets is going to bounce back from Tommy John surgery to be the best pitcher, the best starting pitcher in the in either league this year, including Clayton Kershaw. Uh, this sounds sacrilegious. St. Clayton is not going to be pleased. How can you say this about Matt Harvey? Well, I think his skills justify the statement. Now, I don't think it's absolutely true if they give him an innings cap. You know, a pitcher who doesn't have to be as good as, uh, doesn't have to be the best pitcher to be the most valuable for us if he's getting 50 extra innings. But I think in just terms of pure, you know, decimals, ERA and whip, um, his skills tell me that he's the best pitcher. You know, he strikes the guys out. He's got fantastic control. He keeps the ball in the ballpark. Um, he's a great pitcher, and as long as he's healthy, which he is, um, I don't see what's going to stop him from being a fantastic pitcher. Now, yeah, you have to, you know, take into consideration the fact that he's going to pitch 180, 190 innings. But given where he's going in drafts and his price, um, I think you ought to be able to get a, a, you know, some quality innings to to make up for that. And and at the end, you know, have a guy who's just as good as anybody who was maybe the eighth pitcher taken. You know, that's what these games are all about. So let's go for it. Speaking of Matt Harvey and Tommy John surgery, you've also noted that for we've got all these supposed improvements in pitcher usage methods, patterns, workload management. Teams are paying so much more attention to all of these issues when it comes to getting their pitchers through the season and staying healthy, and yet we're getting more of them injured than ever. And I, I'm wondering, what do you, how do you think we should respond to that as fantasy owners, and also how do you think real baseball should be responding as well? Well, um, First question first, there's nothing we can do about it except sit and watch. Um, as far as real baseball is concerned, why not do a little experimenting? Um, I, I think it would be much better off, well, I don't know that this is true, but I think it's worth trying, is these hard-throwing relievers should pitch, make fewer appearances but face more batters. You know, pitch two innings or go once through the batting order um, and then have a couple of days off um, instead of pitching three days in a row. The other thing that people don't talk about is these guys get up and throw all the time and don't pitch. Um, there's absolutely zero value for the team in that. Um, but I think that if, you, if the managers planned it better, they could say, okay, 
this guy's going two innings tonight. I think that you could have pitchers pitching two innings twice a week. I mean, that's 100 innings without with, with no more injury risk increase, and it's better for the team. And one of the things that if you ever look at is the, the team ERAs in the fifth and sixth inning are ridiculously bad. They're way over four. Um, some team, some smart team is going to realize, hey, you know, if I bring my seventh inning guy or my eighth inning guy in here, I'm going to beat these teams in ERA by two runs over the course of a season. And you can't tell me that that's not going to result in a lot of wins. Um, you saw it a little bit in the postseason, which makes it easier to do because there's a lot of days off. But what, what the Royals did was they were doing that with their, with their big you know, middle-inning relievers, and it worked really well. Uh, I don't know if anybody's going to notice it, but I think that at some point there's going to be a team that has nothing left to lose that's going to try this. And if it works, then, then you'll see everybody doing it within a couple of years, whereas nobody did it. You know, the way they have now, the seventh-inning guy, the eighth-inning guy, the closer – Nobody did that even 10 years ago. Um, and there's no, you know, there's no basis, there's no evidence that it, that it works better. To me, it seems an extravagant waste of talent. And, you know, as I said, it's not keeping anybody any healthier. So let's try something different. Well, I've, I've read a theory that says that the teams don't care about those middle relievers. Just go out there, throw as hard as you can, as long as you can, and then when you've, your arm falls off, we'll just kick you off the team and get somebody else who can do the same. But what about the idea that we often hear from people who support these usage methods in the bullpen that say the ball players want to know what their role is. If they come to the ballpark knowing, hey, I'm the seventh inning guy, I'm the eighth inning guy, I'm the closer, it somehow gives them a psychological comfort that they don't have to be surprised by what they're going to be doing that night. I don't know if it matters, but if it's predictability they want, I mean, they can, the coach can say, okay, you know, before you were the seventh inning guy, but now it's going to be a little different. Now you're going to pitch two innings, and then you're going to have two days off. Um, your role is to get guys out um, and to help the team in the best way. And I think the players would go along with that for the most part. I, you know, it, it certainly worked before it, and I didn't see any psychologically traumatized pitchers in 1990 um, because they weren't the seventh inning guy. Um, so, I mean, it shouldn't be a factor. I mean, you, you know, it's a crazy world. But in any case, I, I mean, to, to use that as an excuse not to do it seems to me to be really lame. Um, so, you know, forget it. One of the things you can do, by the way, I mean, you asked me and I said there was really nothing we can do. Um, there is something that we can do, though. It's a small thing. Um, look at when you're going for your closers, Add an extra buck for the guy who has more appearances of an inning plus, um, which is one of the reasons why I like Chapman so much. It was a little disguised because he missed a month, but you know he pitched six times more than one inning. I mean, not only not only does that increase the value of his decimals and gets him more strikeouts, but it also gives him a chance to get another couple of wins. And there have been a lot of rotisserie leagues that have been decided by one or two wins. You know, it's a it's a stat that we you know a category we don't talk about that much, but it's a category, and you know people say don't chase wins, and okay, I mean that makes sense, but you know you have to get wins, you need them to win, and there's one little opportunity where you can sort of stealthily sneak in a win or two, and and you know it could be the difference. Sometimes way more than that. I remember the first time I ever won my league, my American League uh, format league, was uh, because Arthur Rhodes, a, a reliever in Seattle, had uh, just astonishing uh, decimals, uh, uh, a whip under one, a ERA well under two, and 10 wins. He got me 10 vulture wins that year, and that was the difference. It was like a six-point difference. Because in our league, and I know in many leagues, the uh, wins tend to clump, especially in the middle of the of the category. And man, you had 10 wins, you know, instead of a two-win uh, two reliever, you have a 10-win reliever, that's eight Profit wins, and man, a oh man, eight wins in my league is usually good for like five, six points. So it's certainly something to consider. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. And Gene, you have a couple of ideas about how players develop. One of them is called the no development theory, and a parallel one is called the old development theory. How do these fit together? What do they mean? Well, we talked about them already, and and with this new research, and the old development theory was, you know, age 26 with experience, expect a breakout, um, 
and then, but that might not be true anymore. So as I say, my thinking on this is what you see is what you get. Make your adjustments based on the the player's um, ability uh, and the normal um, vicissitudes of luck. Um, and other than that, I, I pretty much would ignore um, age as a uh, as a criterion for um, for evaluating what players are going to do. And I think it applies on the uh, with the older players too. Um, you know, people tend to say, "Well, you know, he's thirty four now." Um, he can't possibly repeat what he did last year. Well, you know, what he did last year was six months ago. Uh, at some point, yes, of course, they are going to decline, but six months is not a very long time. And if a guy has developed, you know, most 34-year-old players have, you know, established their skill level, I don't expect any great, you know, anyone to fall off a cliff just because they're age 34. I mean, you maybe take a little off, but maybe not. Especially since uh, over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so, as more and more money gets into the game, these players have an extremely vested interest in maintaining their physical fitness, staying in shape, and so forth. Uh, used to be, you know, I, I can remember, I'm, I'm old enough, I'll admit it, to remember days when there it was not unusual to see uh, good ball players walking around in the dugout smoking. I remember there was a very famous picture of uh, Dick Allen. I think he was playing for Chicago or maybe Philly at the time. And he was juggling a couple of baseballs on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine. And he had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. I mean, that that's just astonishing. And you, of course, you'd never see anything like that today. And these guys work on their fitness year-round. They're stretching. They're, they're looking after their nutrition. Uh, you know, we, we, there, there's the old statement that 40 is the new 30 and 60 is the new 50 and so forth. But... For baseball players, maybe 34 is the old 25, you know? Yeah, uh, one of the players I got in Tal Wars, um, the boring and unsexy Jose Uribe, um, he's 34 or 35. Last couple of years, he's been a better hitter than he ever was before. Um, I don't expect that to change. I agree with you. When you were discussing John Lester of the Cubs, Gene, you said that a pitcher's ability to induce the type of batted ball that is called for by the game situation is the most valuable batted ball skill that a pitcher can have. Uh, so first, do you really think that we can classify that as a skill? And second, uh, what pitchers have you noticed besides John Lester who have it? There were none in the game today, but both Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson were that type of pitcher. They came up as extreme fly ballers, and as their careers went on, it's the mark of a great pitcher. Um, I think it is a skill, but I think it's a very rare skill, um, which is why I mentioned it in, in, in Lester's case, because I think that he has evolved to the point where he knows what he's doing. Um, and by the way, his control improvement is another indicator that, that that's true, um, that yes, I think he can at least to some extent, induce the type of, of batted ball that he needs. And yes, it is extremely valuable. Um, and I think it's one of those things that, that really operates in the margins and makes the difference between, you know, people talk about strand rate as being pure luck, but if you can get the type of batted ball that you want, your strand rate, your good strand rate is not going to be luck. It's going to be based on the fact that you put the ball where you needed it and the hitter wanted to do that. Greg Maddox was another perfect example of that he could do that um i don't think he was ever really extreme i think he was always a sort of in the middle batted ball guy but i remember one story about him when um, the second baseman mark lemke had gotten hurt on a play and maddox went over to him and said are you all right are you okay he said yeah i'm fine he goes good because the next batter's hitting the ball to you and then bang next ball hit the batter to him double play so yeah it is at least partially a skill but very rare. I remember another story I read about uh, about Greg Maddox years ago that uh, that said uh, in the first inning he gave up a very loud, far foul ball, and when when they came off the field, the catcher said to him, "Geez, that guy really got a hold of that. Uh, you know, lucky he didn't hit it fair." And Maddox said, uh, and this may be apocryphal for all I know, but uh, apparently Maddox said, "No, no, he was going to hit it foul. That was what I was doing. I just I'm just setting him up for the seventh inning." Because, you know, <laughs> right, and sure right. enough, on the seventh inning, he got him out with a mighty cut at, at something that nubbed it to second or something like Maybe he hit it to Mark Lemke, who knows? But yeah, it's, uh, I wonder to what extent, though, Gene, this is a coachable skill rather than something that just uh, sort of is acquired by osmosis. 
Well, for one thing, it requires outstanding control. I mean, not just good control, but outstanding control of all your pitches. Um, and that's rare in itself. So, I, 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 you know, it's not something to, uh, to you know, base your whole outlook on, but it's definitely something to notice. You know, when you see a pitcher whose, um, who's, you know, batted ball data is going towards the middle and he's improving, you, you should say to yourself, aha, is this real? Let's get you know. Let's look a little a little deeper at this and see if this is in fact you know a manifestation of this rare skill. And if it is, you know, go an extra two three bucks on the guy because it's going to pay off. And I wonder also whether to what degree we're going to see overlap between that skill and the uh, more aggressive defensive positioning that we're already seeing in baseball. That is, uh, you know, if you're the pitcher out there and you know that they're going to overshift him to a certain spot, whether you can. Mi- increase the chance that he hits the ball to one of those certain spots that you've uh, overloaded defensively, boy, you could really see some changes in in offensive outcomes to the point where I wonder at some point in the future whether there's going to have to be s- some kind of limitation on it because we're going to get uh, games going down to one nothing. Well, I don't think it's going to happen, but one of the things I do in preparing for the year is look at the big picture and say what's going to happen in baseball this year that might affect individual players. And, and I think that for this year, I think for the first time, you're really going to see players hitting against the shift. Um, so one of the things I did last week, in fact, um, in preparation for, uh, for Tau Wars, was to look at those players who were the most shifted and, and see if I could figure out which ones of them were going to try to hit against the shift this year. Um, I know Matt Adams did it last year in the beginning of, uh, of last year. When his power was down, everybody's saying, but he was hitting 350. And it's because they were shifting him and he was going the other way. And, you know, it's a rational response to it. I mean, how rational and uh, over time, I don't know. The problem with, these, with doing that is that almost all the guys who were shifted are really slow. Um, and, and so base hits, you know, you wonder about them. The only two guys who had any speed are Curtis Granderson and, and Colby Rasmus. And those are two guys that I've been watching this spring. And I noticed that uh, that Granderson, in particular, is having a really good spring. And with him batting at the top of the order, he's a guy that I had decided to push a little harder on this year. And and I bid him to eighteen dollars in Towers, which I thought was an overpayment, and I got topped. So I'm not the only one thinking this. So, you know, nineteen dollars for Curtis Granderson, based on his last couple of years, to me seems to be a high price. Um, on the face of it, but I, I don't think it was a bad buy at all. Gene, finally, I know you've commented uh, humorously on the shift in language and terminology among fantasy experts, especially some of the terms they use that are not so, shall we say, statistically oriented. Yeah, you know, he's got a great hit tool. You know, he looks good now. Yeah, have a chore, guys. Um, actually, I think it's good, though. I, I, I you know, everyone has always said that the best, uh, it's best to combine statistical analysis with, with scouting acumen. And I agree with that. And, and it's kind of a manifestation of that, and I am poking fun at it. But in general, I think it's a good thing. You know, the more information, the better. Um, so let's, yeah, keep it up, guys. And have a chaw. <laughs> and have a chaw. I, would, I, I agree with the concept, but I'd rather uh, have... Uh, the numbers guy do the numbers and the scouting guys do the scouting. And I get a little um, concerned when I hear uh, a stat guy, a guy who's made his bones in the business by identifying statistical trends, all of a sudden using terms like uh, he doesn't have enough athleticism or you know he uh, has a good projection because of his appearance. You know, he's got a good build or these kind of things. I know that they matter. But at the same time, I, I would just as soon leave that to people who have some training or expertise in that area rather than just letting a, a stat guy whose you know, primary exposure to a lot of baseball is what he sees on TV and you know, a few at-bats here and there. Point taken um, and, and, and valid. Um, the only thing is, is that there's a lot, of, you know, a lot of the stat guys have gone into scouting. I think of Jason Gray. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it, but if you have the background and if you have the training, that's, that's the ideal thing. But other than that, uh, I stand corrected. Your point is let's, let's keep them segregated.
Listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. Gene, every time you come on the show, I always want to talk uh, briefly with you about uh, music. You're a regular contributor to the music website rockremnants.com, along with some other contributors that people will recognize in the fantasy baseball business. So, Gene, what bands, tunes have you been listening to lately on the old CD player or turntable or iPod or whatever it is you use? I'm not in a... um exploratory phase at the moment i haven't heard anything that's that's really great um so whenever that happens to me i go back to the roots and i check out howlin wolf because he's the baddest singer who ever lived and um so i would recommend two songs for him tell me and somebody in my home for two different types of uh of deep deep blues go to it kid tell me what in the world can be wrong? Tell me What in the world can be wrong? Woke up this morning Trouble knocking on my door I wonder what the trouble Reading trouble at my door Howlin' Wolf and Tell Me, recommended by Gene McCaffrey. The track was recorded in June of 1957 at the same session where the Wolf also recorded Gene's other recommended track, Somebody in My Home. And if you're keeping score at home, that was Howlin' Wolf on vocals and harmonica, Adolph Billy Duncan on tenor sax, Jose Lee Kennard on piano, Willie Johnson and Smokey Smothers playing guitar, Alfred Elkins on bass, and Earl Phillips on drums. This is Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. And Gene, before the season, I'd like to ask our guest experts to talk about sleepers and weepers. Sleepers, of course, are guys you think you could get at a low price and return some nice profit this year. And weepers are those guys you think will be overpriced and a good bet to return a loss. So let's start with your sleeper hitters, guys you'd like to acquire for this year. Who's your sleeper hitter in the American League? I like Jose Ramirez on the Indians. Uh, people are talking about Lindor, but I'm extremely impressed that this guy at the age of 21 came up, more than held his own, played great defense, showed good contact, really good contact for a rookie. He's got great speed. Um, I think he's going to play no matter what, no matter how good Lindor is. Um, 
He's going cheap. I think you can probably get a, a good batting average and maybe 30 steals out of Jose Ramirez. Got to like those 21-year-olds finding their way into Major League Baseball. A National League sleeper hitter, Gene? We talked about Curtis, Curtis Granderson, who I think, um, you know, not exactly unknown. Um, the other guy is Neil Walker. Um, he's batting cleanup or fifth. Um, he's got really good power. Um, I think he came into his own last year. Big strides against left-handed pitching. Still seems to be a little bit undervalued, Neil Walker. And now how about some weeper hitters? These are the guys that you think are going to be overvalued and you don't want on your roster. And again, let's start in the American League. Who's a weeper hitter for you? Well, I hate to say this on Baseball HQ, but um, Chris Carter is the kind of hitter that I really, really like to avoid coming off the year that he had. Um, it's possible that he just learned something. I could be wrong about this, but you know the pattern of the extreme K fly ball hitter is that uh, is boom and bust, and add in the fact that he qualifies only at DH to start. Um, he's not a guy that I'm going to roster. And in the National League, a weeper hitter there. Well, I think uh, Travis Darno is a little bit overrated. Um, typically, catchers come up, they show a little something, people get excited and they go into the tank for four years. Um, I, th- I think that they're, a, you know, in a mixed league, I'd take Ionetta. I'll take, I think he's about even with Cervelli, who's going about 100, 150 players later. I just think more caution. Let's, let's exercise caution with him. So Gene McCaffrey's sleeper hitters, Jose Ramirez in the American League, Neil Walker in the National, your weeper hitters, Chris Carter in the American League, and Travis Darno in the National League. Let's move on to the mound, Gene, uh, some sleeper pitchers that you're going to target to in the American League. Um, I like Chen on the Orioles. Um, he doesn't get a lot of respect. He's not a big strikeout guy. But if you look at him, he's not really a finesse lefty. He's finesse plus. Um, he gets his fastball up to 92, 93 when he needs to. I know he's got a bad ballpark, but people, I think, are overreacting to that, and I see him going for single digits in some leagues, and I think that uh, there's profit potential there. And a pitcher in the National League you think might be a sleeper? Well, not exactly a sleeper, but uh, Jake Arrieta, um, people are saying, well, let's see him do it for more than one year, but he really did do it for more than one year. Um, as soon as he came to the Cubs, he... Uh, this improvement manifested itself, and I think he's definitely for real. I think if you're looking for a you know a, a good SP number two, possibly and definitely worth reaching for as an SP number three, take Arietta. And switching over to the Weepers, these are guys, as I said, you think are overvalued and you do not want on your roster. And again, let's start in the American League. Well, I think um, Iwakuma um, is the type of pitcher who does not typically have a long career. Um, and he's um, injury-prone, and he's already 34. Um, you know, nobody's taking him as their ace, but in mixed leagues especially, I would be, I would be concerned. I would go, try to go for a guy who, uh, with more strikeout potential. And finally, your weeper pitcher in the National League. For the same reasons, um, Andrew Kashner can't stay healthy. Strikeouts do not match his velocity. I know he's got San Diego going for him. But um, I certainly want Tyson Ross ahead of Andrew Kashner. You and a lot of people, uh, Tyson Ross looks like a, a good call for this year. So Gene McCaffrey's uh, sleepers and weepers on the mound, Wei Yin Chen in the American League, uh, Jake Arrieta in the National, and your weepers, Hisashi Iwakuma of Seattle and Andrew Kashner of the San Diego Padres. Uh, Gene, before we let you go, tell us where listeners can read more of your work. Well, I'm going to be posting some on WiseGuyBaseball.com this year. Um, I'm going to come up with some sort of new arrangement since I'm not charging people money this year, and I and I haven't. Um, and I, I probably need to get a new website, but I'll you know keep your eyes open, Google my name, and you'll see what I'm going to be doing because I am going to be doing something this year, and um, I hope you um, follow. Any social media type, Twitter, Facebook, those kind of things. Well, I do, yeah, I will be doing Facebook things. Um, everybody's been telling me to get on Twitter and do it, so yes, I probably will do that. I'm a little leery of this 140-character thing, but <laughs> I suppose it has its place. Um, but I will be on Facebook, and I'll, follow me on Facebook, and I'll, um, I'll announce what I'm going to be doing in more detail. Gene, thanks a million for sharing an hour with us, and uh, good luck in all your leagues this year, and of course we'll have you back during the season as well. My pleasure, Patrick. Always the greatest pleasure.
Gene McCaffrey is a longtime fantasy baseball expert and a competitor in Tow Wars and other experts' leagues. He also writes regularly about music at rockremnants.com. Next up, the Minor League Minute. This is Baseball HQ Radio. I was asking you, sir, uh, why it is that baseball wants this bill passed. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Well, Mr. Mantle, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the affability of the antitrust laws to baseball? Well, my, my views are just about the same as Casey's. <laughs> Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is keeping busy all during spring training, getting you ready for draft, with features like our starting pitcher buyer's guide, where columnist Stephen Nickran this week wraps up spring training for National League rotations. Ray Murphy's speculator column has part one of his annual long-shot leaders and award winners. And Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton, has his positional health reports for outfielders. Plus, we have our draft tools, news coverage, facts and flukes performance validation, and much more, all updated every day to help you get ready to dominate your draft. That's the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Tuesday commentary. It's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Detroit catching prospect James McCann is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. For those of you with fantasy drafts this coming weekend, you might want to save a buck or two for the Detroit Tigers' James McCann, but you're not going to find him on any top 50 prospect list. The 24-year-old McCann was a second-round pick out of Alabama in the deep 2011 draft and looks to have locked up the backup catching job in Detroit. McCann is a plus defender behind the plate with excellent catch-and-throw skills and a knack for framing pitches. He also blocks balls well and has the defensive chops to be an everyday backstop. Offensively, McCann has below-average present power and has never hit more than eight home runs in a season. He can also be overly aggressive at the plate and doesn't draw a ton of walks, but he's shown that he can hit for average nonetheless. Last year, McCann had his best season at the plate, hitting .295 with a .343 on-base percentage and a .427 slugging percentage. He also stroked 34 doubles to go along with seven home runs. With Alex Avila's concussion and injury history, there is a chance that McCann exceeds the 163 at-bats we have projected for him and makes an excellent late-round flyer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All through spring training and on into the season, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, and others have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups once the season begins, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive at your draft and in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 31st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 13 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest expert for this edition of the show. It was Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. Always fun talking with Gene and always worth listening to him as well. I also want to thank our commentator from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a recap of my Tout Wars Mixed League auction results on the site right now. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Be the first to know when a new show is up. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular news and notes edition featuring Todd Zola as well as Master Notes. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Another Howlin' Wolf song right after the credits. Enjoy that if you like, and I'll see you next week.
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.